like one of the qualities that we want most for our loved ones is that they would be confident. It's what we hope for, for the people that we love, as much as anything else. It's not, it's not all that we hope for, but it's one of the qualities that we want for them. Not that they will be brash and arrogant and know-it-alls, and not, not that we would want that, but we, we'd want them to be confident. We would want them to have inner assurance about who they are. At the end of this letter, I want us to talk about where this leaves us. Where it leaves us as people. In this letter, we talk, we've talked much about love and about the God-man. And as I think about where this leaves the kind of the early church, the picture that comes into my head often as I think about the early church after, after Jesus has departed up into heaven, after that, the, one of the, and it's probably, it's not the most reverent picture of the early church you can have, but it's the one that comes into my mind. I don't know if you've seen the film Forrest Gump. It's, Tom Hanks is a pretty good reference point for you know, addressing the whole audience. The film Forrest Gump, there's a, there's, a, there's a point in the story where he takes off and he starts running in those really cool Nike shoes and people start to follow him and they follow him and they follow him and they follow him. And this wonderful moment where he turns around back at the crowd and he says, I'm going to go home now. I'm tired. And you're left with this dysfunctional, a long way from home, scared looking, weird looking, slightly lost about their purpose now, community of people. Whenever I think about the early church, it might just be because a lot of them had beards. This is how I imagine the early church, at least in a sense, to have felt. What are, we, what are we supposed to do now? Sometimes, and I've definitely had this, as you go back into normal life on a Monday morning, you come away from the Sunday service and the preacher talks about, and for the last 10 weeks really in John, I think we've had three or four that have been a lot about love. It's been love, heavy chat. It's been Jesus, is a, Jesus was a real man, this means God loves us and we should love each other. Really, those have been the sermons. And sometimes when we arrive back at work on a Monday morning and we, we do that thing where we're in the, maybe in the canteen and in a, in a good godly moment, we think, what, what was this sermon about on Sunday? And we think about all of, all of the stuff that's going on around about us, all of the life and the chaos and the demands on our time. It feels like a long way from loving each other. Where does it... Where, what do we do with this letter? This is the last look at 1 John. What do we do with all this stuff about love? One of the things that often happens to us um, with faith, with faith in Jesus, with religion, is it means, we, th we think that it means we need to leave knowledge at the door. We think it means, head, we think it means we've, got to, we've got to leave what we know information that, we, that we've learned on the TV or whatever else, we kind of, we've got to drop stuff. We've got to park it when we come through that door. And then we've got to head in what is a less confident direction. Increasingly, we've got to drop stuff off. Documentaries that we watch, we need to leave stuff behind in order to have this faith. That's one of the things that we end up thinking. What John tells us in this letter is actually what faith is, is the opposite of that. Faith is taking what we know taking what we found out, what we've discovered, what we've seen as true and real and living in it and building our lives in it to the extent, not that we lose confidence, but that we become more confident. 
So this, this sermon's re- really quite simple, and hopefully the, the tech team will be able to get some of the text on the screen, because that'll, yeah, that'll be really help me out as I preach. Um, there's just a few things that John tells us that we know already that we've got to live inside and build confidence in. And the first one is there in verse 13. And it's this, and it's another one of those things that you say on a Sunday that sounds perfectly plausible to you good people. But when you hit Monday morning, you're going to think back and wonder what to do with it. John says to us here that we are to live knowing we have eternal life. I pause over those words. We are to live knowing that we have eternal life. I write these things to you. And I'm going to pause over that word knowing. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have this eternal life. Remember we've stopped to think. This is Since Joe preached, I can't remember what it was, a couple of months ago, we, we've, we've been caused to think about this word know, this idea of knowledge. And one of the... One of the lessons that we've learned is that we need to move beyond this idea that it's just a passing thought or information that we've gleaned. Particularly John, when he's talking about knowledge, he's talking about something much richer, much deeper than that. And I'll reference again uh, the couple at the start of the Bible that Joe referenced. When we think about to know someone, we read in Genesis that Adam knew Eve They had intimate relations and they knew each other. To have knowledge, as John speaks of it, to have knowledge of eternal life is to really, it's not just a, you know, sometimes we think of heaven as just being that, the fingers crossed moment right at the end of time. I hope when I die, I get to go somewhere. And that's what we know of heaven. John's not saying that. John's saying, I want you to increasingly live Not just fingers crossed, hope I get there. Like it's a reality, like it's where you're headed, like it's the plan, because it is the plan. Here's the thing, I think, on that front. What is the best educator? Death. The reality of death is a pretty compelling educator, isn't it? One of... One of my parental tactics, I don't use it as much as I, as I did, but I still use it now, particularly when we're on cliffs, I go straight to the threat of death as a tactic for parental. And I'm seeing a few parents who go, yes, death really works as a parental tactic. You see your kids heading near the edge, you don't talk about subsidence, you don't talk about um, common sense or anything like that, just go straight for, you'll die if you go near there. That's the parental tactic. Death, the, the concept of death, even though I make light of it there, in a really so way sometimes, shapes so much how we go about living. The fact that it's in front of us shapes so much of what we do. means that we have fear. means that we have stuff that, legitimate fear, stuff that we are scared of. means that we've got genuine sorrows. means that... We live knowing in front of us is death, and there will be difficult times. There will be genuine sorrow in front of us. It means in an even more subtle way that we're a bit more precious about stuff. We're a bit more self-oriented, a bit more self-focused. We don't do the math in that way. We don't think, well, I'm going to die at some point, so I'm off to Hawaii next summer, or I'm going to die at some point 
So I'm going to buy this or buy that. But the truth of it is, that's what happens. Death condenses as it focuses inwards on ourselves. It's a huge informer of how we live. And it is for me. And yet, we know about Jesus that after his death, he pushed back on that stone. He got up and he walked about. You could probably say he hung around. He passed the time. He spoke to people. He cooked breakfast. And he made, this is the, I think this is the most brilliant bit, Matthew 28, he made plans. He made plans for the future. John asks us, John asks us to shape our world. And we are challenged by the way Jesus lives to shape our world in light of the fact that this is not the end. So we change from thinking, this is just what we can get out of life, to thinking, how can I best invest my time? What can I do for this place? We stop becoming so immediate and so self-aware. If, if we think that there's more, and in Jesus we see that there's more, then it shifts our view. We don't just stick with the sorrow, and there's going to be sorrow, but we don't just stick with the sorrow. We know that there's joy as well. And the prospect of heaven, if it's really lived out, it shifts from being what it can sometimes be, which is just a fingers crossed, I hope there's something after this. When we think about what, what it means that there's a heaven, God's kingdom coming in all its fullness, stuff being made right, the language here is that we have eternal life, but there's so and sometimes we look at that and think, is that just being around for a long time? I'm not sure how much I fancy that. The idea of eternity with God is this idea that everything is being put right. That life becomes perfect. When we live in light of that, when we know that, the idea of heaven becomes not just a fingers crossed thing. It becomes something we mourn for. Something we ache for. John says, live in light of the fact that we have eternal life. The second thing that he says to us, he says, live in light of the fact that we know that God hears us. Live in light of the fact we know that God hears us. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So follow the train of that thought. If we, if we are people moved by his, the story of Jesus, and if we align ourselves with his will, as we see what he's saying and get in line with it, now hang on to this, do you believe this? He hears every word, every thought that we say. He hears what we say. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, now hang on to this because it sounds like you can pray for a holiday to Hawaii in a minute and it's going to come true. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Don't ask for a holiday to Hawaii. I, I think it's, you might get one, but I think it's unlikely that you get one. I don't think that's what this verse is saying. If we're on page with his will, if we're convinced that he's good and we know that he hears us, 
then we can be at peace. That's what this verse is saying. We can be at peace that he's heard it and he's good. And if it's for us, we'll get it. And one of the, a, a quote from Tim Keller says, God will either give us what we ask for or what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. This verse tells us that we, if, if, if we believe who Jesus is, if we're happy to be, align ourselves with, with his will, then increasingly we're asking for what he wants and he hears every word of that and we can be at perfect peace with the fact that our God hears us in those things. And he takes us beyond that. Verse 16, he says, and this kind of blows your mind, I think, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray that God will give them life. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray that God will give them life. Do you see what he's, he's saying to us? If you know that God hears you, and you know that he's good, then some of the things that you, you ask for can be a little bit bolder. You can look round into the crowd and you can see people moving away from God. And often, I don't know how you go with this, but sometimes when you see that storyline, you think, oh, there's nothing more now. It's so difficult. And yet God says to us, if we live in the knowledge of who Jesus is, if we live in the knowledge that he hears us, then we'd become emboldened with the things that we ask. One of the most wonderful uh, parts of Jesus' character, I think, is when he stops to listen. He's got somewhere to be, and the crowd are hammering him, blocking his way. They've got 101 things to ask, and Jesus hears somebody in the crowd, small face at the back of the crowd, and he stops to listen. Here's what you need to know, I think. God hears you. God's heard your voice. We see in Jesus that God is a God who hears us. When you know somebody's really listening, do you know when you're having a chat with somebody and you can sometimes see them looking beyond you or you can sometimes see them glance down at the watch, that kind of thing. When you know somebody is in it with you, it really changes how you speak. When we speak to God, we know that he is on us in that way and we know that he's good and his answers are good. Final thing he says is live knowing that you can change. Anybody else got a faith problem with that? Live knowing that you can change. The prevailing mentality, I think, is that, what is it, a leopard never changes its spots. We hang on to this, don't we? This is a prevailing wisdom of the world. I think we look at each other and even ourselves and say, can we really change can I really see the work of God in me? Verse 18 to 20 says, we know that anyone born of God doesn't continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God. We know the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. John doesn't let us off with anything there in verse 19. He says to us, I know, you know, we know. It's often our excuse, I think, isn't it? In terms of our behavior, maybe an excuse that we give to ourselves. It's just so bad out there. 
It's just you don't know the half of it. It's kind of the story that we tell ourselves, maybe the story that we tell God. We can't survive this. It's just impossible to even think about holiness given the way that the world is shaped. John points out here, says, and think about what it means tonight. He says, we know. It's not a good enough excuse. We know, how to, we know already that that's the way that the world is. We know that. But we know too, John says, verse 18 and 20. Because we've seen it in Jesus. That when people, to surren- people surrender to him, that they are changed. And we know too, because we've seen it in Jesus, that when people to surrender, surrender to him and are changed, they are kept. And you see from the start of Jesus' ministry to the end, the people that he encounters, people demon-possessed, people ignorant of wrong and right, people stuck in sin, uh, prostitutes ready to, waiting to be stoned, and yet, yet what? In Jesus, they meet somebody who is able to change them and transform them and keep them. It says in verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come. He's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. John says to us, we've seen enough in the person of Jesus to see through this darkness, to find a way through it. One of the things I think Jesus does in his ministry for us is he affects people's confidence. He shifts where people place their confidence away from the immediate things and leads it somewhere eternal into where we can imagine God is. Uh, One of the characters um, that John picks up in his gospel, um, at the start of the story, we, we imagine him a really confident character. So we read about him twice. We read about him in John 3 and we read about him right at the end. He's a character called Nicodemus. We see this guy, Jesus refers to him as Israel's teacher. You can imagine him to be quite a confident, assertive guy. He knows his stuff. I think it's one of those moments where John, who I assume to be quite a smart guy too, spots another smart guy and he thinks, I'm going to, I clocked this guy. And he sees this guy. And this guy who must have had quite a bit about him, we read in John 3, has a real confidence crisis. Most of what he knew seems to have been upturned in what he's seen of Jesus. And we read that he goes to Jesus to see him by night. And when he gets there, his confidence crisis isn't resolved. It's only made worse. And I imagine this guy, Nicodemus, just has eyes on Jesus for the whole rest of his ministry. Now, the next time we read about Nicodemus, it's a really stunningly beautiful moment. I don't know if, it's able to, if we're able to show it on the screen. That's smashing. It's just this beautiful moment. We've not, we've not, we've not heard much about him in the intermittent years. And this, by this time in the text, when we read about him, Jesus is, is dead. Um, the streets up to Golgotha are, are bloodstained. And the, the fierceness and the threat of Rome has, has terrified the life out of all the Christians. It's like a really dark moment. And yet here we have Nicodemus, this guy with the confidence crisis. See where John leaves him. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh 
and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. This, this is this guy. If you wouldn't have missed this guy, Nicodemus, coming down the street. He's got all the trimmings, you know, decked out. Just this is just, you, you, you don't miss him. And again, maybe that's why he went, he went at night. He's got all the sort of celebrity status. He's got all the position. He's got all that kind of stuff. All the, all the things perhaps you would associate with confidence. Yet he has a confidence crisis. And at this point, we find him, I would say, finding out what real confidence is, what inner confidence is. Uh, we find him physically interacting. And this is, this is the last thing that you do if you're a man of his position, if you're a Jewish man of his position, farming up a dead body. The threat of Rome looking on. The loss of his position, you'd think, almost a guarantee. And yet here he is, a man who's found his confidence. This is what Jesus does. So where does it leave us? If I'm really honest, I thought about talking about where it left us, maybe where it left the church, but I thought I'll, I'll talk about where it leaves me. Still at times, the threat of death unnerves me. It informs how I live. Still at times, I feel unheard. Still at times, I don't know if you ever do this, I'll scream out to the sky. I'll wish for justice or wish... Like I feel like the spotlight should have been more on me or, or God could hear me more. Sometimes I feel like I can't really be changed. I can't ever imagine getting to a place where I would be blasé, confident about these things, verbally confident about these things. But because of Jesus, for me anyway, because of Jesus, I am ultimately confident in the presence of God on this earth. And because I'm ultimately present, confident in the presence of God on this earth, it means that the possibilities for me, I know, even for me, even with that backdrop, remain limitless. So I know, at least where I am, the place that it leaves me, is in a wrestling match for however many days I have left of being called to look again at that man Jesus and realize I need to place more of my confidence in, in him. I'm going to finish up just by reading um, part of Paul's note to the Philippians. Um, maybe we could absorb this and we just realize that this is, um, this is, this could be a prayer for us. And Paul says to the church at Philippi, Philippians 1, 3 to 5, and he speaks to the church. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day till now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the com till completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You could say of the church, uh, beaten up and bruised, hanging on by a thread, I can pray with joy over you, and I'm confident of this, that God who set something off in you God who started something off in you, no matter how hard it looks out there or how unrealistic it looks out there, will keep it until the day of Christ Jesus.
Um, I'm really pleased that Paul and Ash are going to join me. Uh, we said that we would do chat times at the beginning and at the end of, uh, of every series, not because uh, there's anything magical about those times, but because we want chat about the Bible to be part of our conversation, and uh, we want to give people the opportunity to ask questions that maybe uh, they haven't asked um, before. Paul, thank you for joining us. Ash, thanks for your word to us today. Um, Paul, in a, in a sentence, favorite bit of, uh, of 1 John, now that we've got to the end of it? Uh, to, to be honest, my favorite bit has been tonight. Um, no, you can't. Is that a copy? Genu no. Genuinely, <laughs> genuinely. Um, well, my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was just such a such a privilege to see somebody else struggle with a microphone. Well. <laughs> um, now, I think it. I think we've talked so much about love. We've talked about the focus of love, but but tonight we really hit on the kind of hope and purpose of it. And honestly. It, it doesn't mean anything really without eternal life. Uh, and so tonight really has been my highlight. I think it's been fantastic. And you get to that. And John, John does that in, in the gospel as well. Um, in the gospel he says, I think it's John chapter 20, he says, I've written these things so that you'll believe. Mm -hmm. And then he writes in this letter, he says, I've written these things so that you might know that you have eternal life. And it's almost as though he's encouraging these believers to say, I know you've come to the point of believing, but, but I know that once you're a believer, you're going to struggle with the idea of being confident that you've got eternal life. And, and I think every believer would say, I get that. I, I get that struggle. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Definitely eternal life is... That's not one sentence. Uh, no, no, you're never one sentence, <laughs> no, but that's okay. No. I'll let you off. <laughs> um, eternal life is a really... I mean, the word I want to use is freaky in that it's yeah. a kind of unnatural thing for us to think about eternal life uh, as a kid freaked me out like why would I really like I don't want to get old never mind live forever like as you started to kind of unpack some of what eternal life is I think what did you say living with God well I, I was as I was thinking about <clears throat> how you talk about eternal life I, I similarly I was I've from the age of about seven or eight when I've started to think about it, I've gone through a whole plethora of thought onto what, starting at probably lots of clouds and um, angels and nice things happening, um, through to probably quite a different picture now in terms of how I see heaven. And yeah, so one way, when you think about eternal life, almost in our humanity, we think, do I want to, that sounds too big, it's almost an unpleasant thing. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, I think the idea of God making things right um, really makes me want to be there. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing that I ache for. When I think, you know, when I think about heaven and knowing that it's a reality, um, yeah, it, it makes. And I see the injustice, and I see struggle, and I see sorrow, and things like that. Yeah, my ultimate reaction is, is ache, mm -hmm. ache for it. What's your thoughts on eternal life, Paul? Is that something that has changed for you over the years? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I think you, you do have the kind of. Maybe it's influenced by paintings of medieval and Renaissance paintings with angels and clouds and all <laughs> of that kind of thing. Um, but it's kind of a robust idea of what life is. So I, I made a note of a verse which I think oh, is good. amazing, yeah. um, which talks about what, what eternal life is going to be. 
And it's Revelation 21.4 and it says this, He will wipe up every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I think C.S. Lewis is brilliant at this. I'm reading for the first time. I'm trying to work my way right through the, the Narnia oh, cool. novels. And uh, he's brilliant at this idea of orders, the order of things. And, and we live within an order at the moment which is naturally shaped with an idea of death, with an idea of aging. You know, we don't want to get old, mm -hmm, all of mm -hmm. those kind of mm -hmm. things. We, we live with an order which is constrained and the idea that we move into a, a new order of things where all of those things that are so unjust, so painful, so hurtful, so sapping of the joy of humanity of God, um, that's eternal life. And the energy and the, the foundation and the root of that is a joyful, eternal God. But that's amazing. I think that's... In terms of a new order, that's, yeah, that's yeah. A, it's so superior. Yeah, we, yeah, I think I've probably... I don't know, maybe it's getting older. You begin to think more about... You get to the point where you've, you know, at best three quarters of the way through life or whatever it is, and you think, yeah... Um, is this all it is? And thankfully, we're able to say, no, it isn't. And, and in fact, the things that are devastating about this order are the very things that are wiped away in the new order. And I think that that's a mind-blowing, but awe-inspiring and worthwhile pursuit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.